Our Father, we thank you that what is accomplished here on earth that is of eternal value is accomplished by your Spirit. And Lord, we're grateful when you choose to use us as agents of blessing, as those that you will work through to bring about your kingdom here on earth. And Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to freely gather and to worship as we can this morning and to acknowledge your presence and to know that you, your spirit is here and your desire is to speak to each of our hearts individually. We really have a hard time comprehending how that can be, how the omnipresent God can be speaking to hearts individually as if we are the only person on earth simultaneously to millions of individuals. But Father, we believe that to be true and we know that you speak to us prior, uh, primarily through your word. So give us ears to hear and hearts to grasp the truth and the will to do what we hear you commanding us to do. Lord bless us this morning. We invite you to be present here uh, in, in our midst as you were in the midst of Israel and to bless in the service this morning and I pray Father that you will give Dale wisdom as he preaches this message and he will know exactly how to condense it or to say it in such a way that it will fit within the time frame and that you, your name will be exalted and your will be, will be accomplished. Bless throughout this complex this morning. Touch every life according to your sovereign plan. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to uh, read this morning, beginning at verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, 12. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. And he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, your grain, your new wine, and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will remove from you all sicknesses, and he will not put any, on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known. But he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Last week we ended with that particular passage of Scripture. And of course it is a grand promise. It, it's really the, the sort of the finale, the great future for Israel as it was outlined there. And in such uh, wonderful terms, God's blessing is, is basically without limits. It is conditional, of course. Because basically the passage says that if you will keep my commandments, these will be the results. And of course, this has been the truth that God has been teaching uh, his people throughout all time. And by extrapolation, of course, it applies to us. The obedience to the word produces the blessing of God. But as we look at a passage like that, and as we go on to the next passage this morning, we need to be careful that we don't idealize this to the place where we make a fairy tale out of it. This does not mean that Israel, even though they walked in obedience, had no problems. This didn't mean that couples didn't have problems between them or they didn't have children that, you know, maybe had a problem here or there. 
it, it doesn't mean that there weren't those who were in somewhat of financial stress compared to others. It doesn't mean that there, you know, when it talks about the diseases of the Egyptians, those, those were judgments God placed upon the land of Egypt. And because they were walking in obedience, his judgment wouldn't fall. And therefore, none of those diseases that he placed upon the Egyptians would fall upon Israel. But that doesn't mean no one would get a cold or no one would catch, uh, you know, the flu or something. I don't know if they had influenza in those days, but they probably did. So we have to understand this within the framework of reality so we don't disassociate it from the lives we live. Because we could look at this and say, wow, we must be so far out of what God wants us to do and to be, and that's why we're going through all these troubles. No, I don't think so. Because as you read this next section, and then as we go into the first part of chapter 8, we see, we see how this really applies to us. We're going to see how God said, I led you into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested, to be tried, to see what sort of person you really are. And, and so we have to understand this would be true for Israel, not only in the wilderness, but day by day, year by year. It's true for every human being that knows the Lord. Uh, God is at work, and he hasn't created paradise for us here on earth. Uh, paradise is to come, but as we walk with Him in faith and trust, we have the peace of God, the same as we'll have in paradise, we can have it now, in the midst of the storm and of the trial. So let's look on at uh, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders, and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm, by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them, until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a great and awesome God. And the Lord, your God, will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord, your God, shall deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hand so that you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not cover covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it. You shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. There were those, obviously, who weren't too sure whether they were going to even be able to capture the land, let alone live in it the way God had described it through Moses in the passage we just read before the latter passage. With all this peace and joy and all these good things happening, uh, for many it was kind of like and it was a pipe dream. It, it couldn't really happen. But they weren't even certain 
if they're going to get into the land, as we read in verse 17, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how shall I dispossess them? Well, that's what they said when they stood there at Kadesh Barnea 39 years before and basically said, no, we're not going into the land because they are too great for us to dispossess them. We can't do it. And God never told them they could do it. But God is telling them, I can do it through you. And that's what this passage is all about. This passage makes it clear that God does not leave his people to figure out by their own devices how to serve him, how to obey him. God reminded them that it was not by their might that they were delivered out of Egypt. It wasn't because they rose up in a great rebellion and were able to overthrow those that uh, were holding them in slavery. I mean, this isn't the French Revolution where the peasants rose up and overwhelmed the monarchy. Uh, this is where God destroyed the Egyptian power and, and by the great plagues. And they witnessed these plagues and, and they're recounted over and over again in Scripture. Why? So they wouldn't forget that it's not by might and it's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And it's by his spirit that he delivered Israel out of Egypt. Don't forget it, Israel. We read in verse 20 that God promised to send the hornet to drive out the Canaanites. The Hebrew word translated hornet is found in the Old Testament only in three passages, and all three relate to this exact event. Now, some actually literally believe that uh, this referred to real hornets, you know, real killer bees or whatever you want to say, that came in and, and drove them out. A bunch of stinging insects uh, came and drove them out. But most scholars who study this and, and acknowledge the whole passage and all the record that uh, we find here in Scripture believe that we must take this figuratively. Because, first of all, what is interesting about the word hornet is that there's only a slight nuance difference between the Hebrew word for hornet and the Hebrew word for leprosy. I'm not implying that there is a disease involved here. What I'm saying is that as they dreaded leprosy, I mean, it was an absolute curse. It was the worst thing that could possibly happen to you on this planet. So God is saying he's going to send that kind of fear upon the Canaanites. Just as leprosy made one a pariah in his society and, and led one to be ostracized from his society, from his home, from his family, from everything that he loved, so God's fear was going to come in like a hornet, like leprosy, and drive these people out of the land and ostracize them from the land in which they had been living for these many centuries. The 400 years in addition that God had given for them to change had passed, and the iniquity of the Amorite, the Amorite was now full. It was God by his power who was going to drive them out. The first passage in Scripture in which this word is used, let's go back to Exodus chapter 23 and look at a parallelism here. Exodus 23, 27. Very similar passage to the one we're reading and, and some of the same promises are given, of course, considerably uh, before this time. But in the 27th verse, we read, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you that they may drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. You're probably familiar by now with the fact that Hebrew writing is often in parallel, not only in poetry, but sometimes even in prose. There's a lot of parallelism. It'll be said one way, then it'll be used some other words, it'll be said in another way, but it's the same point. 
And if you look at verse 27, you'll notice it says, I will send my terror ahead of you. In verse 28, I will send hornets ahead of you. The hornets, the terror, they are the same thing. This is the implication here, I think, from this passage. And I think it's the implication that we can derive from any passage. Just think, what would be the reality of a hornet attack? If you're attacked by a bunch of hornets, what do you do? <laughs> do you rationalize? Do you think, how is it I can beat these creatures? Your mind is, get out of here. <laughs> fast as you can. And that's what the, what the Lord is saying. They are going to be so fearful, the only they can think of is run. They won't think of how to fight or how to defend themselves or how to outsmart you. They're just going to run because my terror is on them. And I think this really, really can be seen as we look at the reality of what happened after the, quote, hornets had already attacked. And we can see this by turning to Joshua chapter 2 to begin with. This is Pre and then post, we'll re we read also. A and to understand that the hornets are used metaphorically, the term hornet is used metaphorically for the terror of God. In Joshua chapter 2, you remember that uh, Joshua sent two spies to go into Jericho to check, check the place out before he launched the conquest into the land. And those two spies found a rather unique place to hide, and that was in the house of a prostitute. And uh, she hid them on the roof of her house. And uh, this is what she says, beginning with verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given the land, given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God... He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Testimony from the mouth of a pagan prostitute, more powerful than the testimony that came from the mouths of many of God's people. We melted before you, our hearts melted, our courage failed. Sound like somebody faced with hornets? I think so. Rahab had hidden these two Israelite spies in, in spite of the fact that had those spies been found hidden in her house, she would have faced the proverbial firing squad, you know, for treason. But she took that chance, so to speak, because there was a greater terror in her heart, and the greater terror in the heart of her countrymen, and that was the fear of the God of Israel. So great was that fear that she says our hearts melted within us. She felt that there was no stopping the advance of Israel. Why? Because God was with them. If a God can open a Red Sea and march a whole army across, or a whole people across by separating a sea and then drowning the chasing army, what can you do? What can you do to fight a God like that? What good are your walls? What good are your armies? They're of no value. Let's turn to the end of Joshua where he sums it all up just before Joshua passes on. He sums up what God had done in Joshua chapter 24, beginning in verse 8. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who lived beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you, 
and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. And I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. You may remember back a few Sundays when we read in the 21st chapter of Numbers of the Israelite defeat of the two Amorite kings of Sion, king of the Amorites and of Og, king of Bashan, and of the total conquest of Transjordan. And in that description, we find nothing of insects, nothing of literal hornets, nothing of wasps or bees driving out the Amorites. But what we do read about is the power of the Lord, the terror of the Lord. Because one of the things the scripture made clear was that the kings of the Amorites were more powerful than Israel. That Og of Bashan and Sion of Gilead both had armies more powerful than the Israelite army. And yet their armies became as nothing before Israel, and Israel conquered them. And this passage says, it wasn't by the power of your sword and of your bow, even though their sword and their bow was in use. It wasn't by that power that they had the victory. God gave them the victory. God is the one who caused these people to flee and their hearts to melt and, and, and they were to be terrorized and, and chased out of the land and to submit to Israel because in them there was no courage left, no hope, no hope. It's the way of the world, hopeless. God terrorized them. One of the things we read in this passage, or one of the points I think that we have to emphasize when we read this particular passage in Joshua, is what God says here. I, I didn't do this recently, but years ago when I went through this passage, I highlighted where it says in verse 8, I brought you, further on, I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them before you. Verse 10, I delivered you from his hand. Verse 12, I sent the hornet. Verse 13, I gave you the land. I mean, all the way through, God is saying, I have done this. It's not by your might. It's not by your sword or your army or your skill. It's by the power of the almighty God. That flies against human nature. Our basic nature is to well, what, what does a little child do finally when they can finally speak? I want to do it myself. You've all heard that. Every one of your children at some point will say, I want to do it myself. Let me do it. And that's human nature. And when we get to be adults, that's what we still say. God, I want to do it. <laughs> Let me do it myself. He says, no, you won't do it yourself. You're going to do it by my strength because if you do it yourself, you're going to mess it up. You will not succeed. You know, we're, we're told uh, that, of course, Satan has been defeated by Christ, but he has not been defeated by us. That's why I always uh, cringe a little when somebody starts telling the devil what to do. That's fine, providing you're doing it in the, in the, in the wisdom and the power and the strength and the anointing of Christ. 
But if you're in your own strength going around telling the devil what to do, you're outmanned, <laughs> you're outdeviled, or whatever. Um, you know, you're up against a force far too powerful to deal with, but not in God's power. To God, the devil is no more powerful than an ant crawling around on the ground is to us. God terrorized the Amorites. The hornet was the terror of God that melted their hearts so that they fled. In the 20, back in the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, we've been reading, we read the promise that God made after he said that he would send the hornet to drive out the Canaanites. He said to Israel, do not fear them. His words, of course, were to encourage them. And he says, do not fear them because I am in your midst. You know, this is where the role of faith has to be so strong in our lives. Because it's easy for us to doubt that God is present. Because things don't seem to be coming together too well, maybe. Or it seems like we do have fear in our hearts. But, the, but our, by faith, we believe God's word. And he says he is here. I mean, he is here in this room right now because where two or three are gathered in his name, he says, I am present there in your midst. So he is here right now. He is hearing every word. I hope he's inspiring every word. And, and he wants to touch every one of our hearts. He wants us to hear, to believe, and to not fear. No matter what might seem to be looming up right now or in, in the future, what kind of Goliaths or brothers of Goliath seem to be uh, along our path uh, ahead of us. Because he will terrorize the enemy. He will drive the enemy away. Do not fear, he says to Israel. Do not fear, he says to us. Why? Because he's in our midst and it says in this passage that he is a great and awesome God. Great and awesome God. I mean, he was literally in the midst of Israel. And of course, they could see it more readily than we because there was the temple. And as, I mean, the tabernacle. And, and as they moved through the wilderness, there was a pillar of fire sitting on it at night, a pillar of cloud sitting on it by day, and they knew God was there. But again, it was by faith because somebody could say, ah, oh, well, you know, it's just a cloud sitting over there. You know, it's no big deal. Or somebody's generating some smoke and we don't see where they're doing it. You know, all kinds of rationalizations could come up. By faith, they knew God was there. By faith, we know God is here. And the Hebrew words here for great and awesome can be interpreted, of course, as being great and awesome to Israel, but terrifying to the enemies of God. Terrifying to the enemies of God. The presence of God is not comforting and peaceful and, and joy-inducing to those who are the enemies of God. It's a fearful thing, the Scripture says, to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why it's such a horrible lie to depict God as some kind of a f grandfatherly figure with a big gray beard who's just kind of saying, now, 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 I understand. That isn't God at all. Yes, he is our loving heavenly father. But for those who don't believe in him, he's a roaring fire like he was on the top of Mount Sinai and he is consuming, destroying, not comforting to those who don't believe in him. In Psalm 66, we have uh, references to this, the awesomeness of God. The first seven verses of Psalm 66. Shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. 
make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are thy works. Because of, thy, of the greatness of thy power, thine enemies will ha give feigned obedience to thee. I mean, <laughs> God's awesomeness will actually inspire the enemies of God to at least pretend like they're obeying him. That's how terrorized they are. And all the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. And they will sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned to sea into dry land, and they passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, because they're faced with an awesome, fearful, terrible, in the true sense of the word, terrible God. God told Israel so that they would understand what his plan was. He said, I'm not going to enable you to drive the Canaanites all out all at once. You're going to drive them out section by section, region by region. The conquest is not going to be brief, nor is it going to be painless. We have to understand that although God drove out the enemy by the hornet, Israel had to fight the battle. Israel had to fight the battle. They had to slay the enemy by the sword and by the bow. And they had to besiege the walls. They had to march around Jericho. You know, they didn't just walk in and everything falls like a bunch of dominoes as they entered the land. I mean, it's, it's like, I referred to this before, the children's crusade that occurred in 1212. I mean, these children were actually convinced by a couple of teenagers who thought that they would see, you know, heard words from God, that they marched down the tip of Italy and God would open the Mediterranean. They could walk as Israel did on the Red Sea. They could walk in the bottom of the Mediterranean all the way to Israel. And that God would give them Israel where the knights in shining armor had failed. God would give the children the land. And of course it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Because it wasn't the word of the Lord. It wasn't the word of the Lord. Obviously it was the word of the angel of light who comes as an angel in light, but is, of course, the devil in disguise. But God said, I'm going to give you the land of Israel little by little, piece by piece. And he says specifically why? Lest the wild beasts grow too numerous, numerous for you. Here is the wonderful plan, God says. The whole land will be yours, but you will occupy it region by region. And as you clear out a region, settle it. Settle the region, because if you do not, then the wild animals will get out of hand. And I think we have to understand by that that God isn't just saying there'll be more lions than you can deal with. I think God is saying there that if you do that, when you come back to the original lands you first conquered, the fields are going to be totally overgrown. It's going to take you months, years to clear out all the weeds and all the crud that's developed in the fields, and the vineyards are going to go to pot, and, and the orchards are going to go to pot and your, the, the houses and the cities will fall into ruin and vermin will be everywhere as well as the wild beasts being out of hand. I think God was making a broad statement here. You can't just let it go, expect to come back to it, it's going to be in great shape. You've got to take over immediately. I mean, the enemy's heat of their bodies in the house should still be there when you take over, almost, you know, kind of idea. Immediate conquest and settling of the land region by region. 
As the farm is cleared, settle it. As the town is cleared, occupy it. As the enemy disappears over the hill, settle into his land, into his house, into his home. Thus there will be no major break in upkeep. You can just pick up where he left off. Great, great idea. God knows what to do. I mean, God is concerned about the everyday, moment-by-moment needs of his people. And so he, he laid out this plan. Now, I don't know how much we can spiritualize on this here, but it does seem to me that there are some spiritual parallels we can draw here. When you and I come to Christ for the first time, generally speaking, God does not give us immediate victory over all the Canaanites in our life. Yes, we're washed, we're made clean, but there are battles ahead. There are regions that need to be taken. The enemy needs to be driven out piece by piece, place by place, and the land occupied as you move through life. Because if God were to give you immediate victory and chase all, all the Canaanites, the word would be, ah, the Christian life is a piece of cake. It is easy. It's like sailing on the calm seas. There's no problem, no struggle. It's easy. And we would not develop the depth of faith and the depth of commitment necessary to stay in there for the long haul. I don't want to get into a theological discussion here this morning, but one of the, John Calvin said, you cannot really tell for sure who is born again because that person and God alone know, but you can have a pretty good idea. You can have an idea by the fact that they testify to such a faith. You can have an idea by the fact that they are baptized into the faith, and you can have a really good idea by the fact that they persevere in the faith. In fact, that's the P of TULIP, the acronym for his, his basic theology. Perseverance in the faith. And I think that is scriptural. Whatever we think of all that John, John Calvin taught, that is a biblical teaching. Perseverance in the faith. You don't fall in, fall out, fall in, fall out, fall in, fall out of the faith. You may fall down and have to be picked up again. You may be in the mud for a while. You may be off on a rabbit trail, but you don't leave the faith and then come back into the faith. There's a perseverance there. And, and you're, you know, the, the line on the graft of your life may not be a nice you know, straight line upward towards heaven. It may be like this, you know. But there's a general tendency, so if you plot it on a graph, there's a general tendency for a life to be lived in deeper and deeper faith if it has truly been committed to God in the first place. So God doesn't give us victory over all the Canaanites at once in our lives because then there would be nothing to build our strength, nothing to build our faith, nothing to drive our roots deeper in Him. Israel was to conquer one region, destroy the enemy and all of his vestiges, put down their roots, and settle the land and occupy it themselves before moving into the next region. And so it is with us. God will give us victory in this area and show us how to strengthen that area in his word and in faith and in prayer before we move on to the next region. When Sir Francis Drake sailed up the west coast of South America on his famous voyage in the Golden Hind. He came to the city of Lima in Peru, and he thought he'd like to take the city of Lima, capture it. Of course, he was an English, quote, sea dog. The Spanish called him a pirate. And Lima was the capital of Spanish viceroyalty of Peru. 
And he thought, if I can capture Lima, I can get the whole treasury of the whole vice royalty. But as he prepared to do this, he noticed that right there at the port of Callao, which is the port of Lima, was this huge star-shaped fortress of Real Felipe, of King Philip. He says, I don't have the manpower to take that fort. And if I move into the city with that fort between me and my ship, I could be in big trouble. And so it is with us. If we move past a region and we don't clean, if, if we don't allow the Lord to, to occupy that region in our lives and, and to secure it, and we move on to the next region, suddenly we've got an enemy to our rear as well as an enemy in front of us. God enables us to defeat the Canaanites one at a time, to occupy those areas in our life in obedience to Him one at a time, and to strengthen us and to drive us deep in the faith. As the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan, they took one high place at a time, and they cut down the grove, and they destroyed the altar, and they burned the Asherim one high place at a time as they went through the land and purged the land of the vestiges of the evil one. And I think in many ways that's a picture of our lives. One high place at a time. But God wants us to, to be there by faith to assault the next high place as He shows it to us. And that's why if we don't study the Word, we don't even recognize the high places when we come to them. We don't even know that that's a place of idol idolatry in our lives, that that's a place of weakness in our lives. The Scripture is absolutely essential. It's the bright, shining light that shows us what God wants us to do and what God wants us to be. The high places had to be replaced with the solid rock foundation of Yahweh. Faith in Him and obedience to Him. The strength and the faith, the strength of the faith and the obedience of the Israelites was going to be tested further as we read there in chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. God said, The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. And notice what He says next. You shall not covet the gold, the silver, or the gold, gold that is on them nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it, you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. What God is dealing with here is a foundational belief and obedience, a foundational belief and obedience, which has changed the lives of His people so that they aren't just, you know, mechanically following what God says without any thought why, but so that the word of the Lord becomes so saturated in their hearts and their lives that they say, yeah, that's right, because as I love God, I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want this awful thing in my house or to have this substance in my house. If they truly love the Lord their God, which he said in the Shema, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, if you love God that way, you don't toy with the things of the evil one. We've heard it said that there are those believers who, who like to walk as close to the world as they can and still be in the kingdom. I don't know about that. <laughs> I think if somebody is in the kingdom, has been transformed by God, and the Word of God is saturating their lives, they're going to be as far, I mean, we can't get out of the world, but they're not going to be over there walking that line, you know. Well, 
when I go to Las Vegas, I don't go there to gamble or to watch all the girly shows. I go there because the motels are cheap and I can swim in the pool. <laughs> well, I hope that's true. <laughs> but we need to be careful. We need to be very careful. The things dedicated to the worship of the false gods were spiritually tainted. That gold and that silver was tainted. And if they wanted that so badly that they would take that tainted silver and, and that tainted gold, that meant greed was in their heart, and that greed would be the footstool, the, the, the foothold is the word I want, the foothold for the enemy in their lives. And we see this exactly. That's what happens when Achan, when after they conquer Jericho, and they, they, they don't take Ai next in the first attack because... A man by the name of Achan had so much greed, he took what was banned. And, and that's what this passage says. It's banned. Don't take it. You can't have it. He took what was banned and he buried it in his tent. And it wasn't just that man who suffered the penalty. It was the men who went up against Ai and who died in the attack, who were not personally guilty for taking that. That's why the sin of someone like a great TV preacher, is far beyond that person's personal sin because it defames the name of God, it defames the church, and it, it just destroys people. Paul said, I won't even take meat offered to idols, which he says is really nothing, no big deal, if it's going to offend a weaker brother and he is going to fall or fail because of that. I won't do it. That's why the scripture tells us to not even mess with the appearance of evil. Don't even do that which another person can interpret as evil. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean, I mean, somebody can go around and call virtually everything evil. It's evil to get in a car because you're getting a wreck and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But there are some things that are quite obviously so. And I think that's what Paul was talking about. This whole section of Deuteronomy from chapter 7 through chapter 11 is a call to faith and obedience, which, of course, we can say about the whole Word of God, can't we? But, but this is rather specific and, and rather focused. And in many ways, some of these passage apply, passages apply to us in ways that you can't even avoid. <laughs> I mean, they just come up and hit you right between the eyes. And, and that's the way it is with the next passage, beginning in chapter 8. And I'd like to read the passage just to get into our minds. We won't have time to develop it uh, today. But I'd like to read the first 10 verses of chapter 8 because not only were they a powerful passage speaking to Israel, but they are, it is a powerful passage that speaks to us today. Deuteronomy 8, beginning at verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. For your clothing did not wear out on you, 
nor did your foot swell those forty years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land full of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall la not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given to you. And to me, out of it just leaps lessons that are so applicable to us today because God does test us. He does, just as he did Israel. God disciplines us, just as he does, does Israel. And the point of it is not because he doesn't love us. It's because he wants to strengthen us and drive us deeper in our faith in him and enable us to serve him more effectively. And above everything else, why did he call Israel in the very first place? To be a witness to the reality of the living God in the midst of all the troubles and trials and tribulations of life. And if Israel had been a nation and everything was just hunky-dory all the time, everybody would say, whoa, let's join them. And their motivation would not be because of conviction of sin, but because of the desire for the good things of this life. And that's why Jesus did not allow them to crown him king when he fed the 5,000, because he knew all they wanted was to have bread every day without having to work for it. Not because in their hearts they were convicted of sin and needed to be transformed. Most of us before, especially when we get older, before we're willing to be convicted of sin, we have to hit the wall, right? And sometimes even as Christians, we have to hit the wall before we wake up to the fact that God is saying something to us specifically and God wants to change our lives. Anyway, we'll look at this passage in a little bit of detail next week.